So we're picking up in verse 9. Then um, said, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. This is Elijah. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, well, I've been, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him, and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He asked him the same question twice, but the only thing he does in between is kind of God shows off. That if you look at what God does, he asks the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? I mean, we've been through so much. You've been obedient. You've been faithful. You saw me send fire from heaven, and then because of one person, you run for your life as if you think that I have forgotten what it is that I'm supposed to do for you. And I know it's so easy for us to go, Elijah, how could you miss it? And yet, we miss it all the time. We watch God's faithfulness and then we fall away. We watch God's faithfulness and then we freak out. We watch God's faithfulness and all of a sudden, all of a sudden something massive hits and we wonder, God, where'd you go? And then we're gonna fix it along the way. Since God's not doing it, we're gonna step in. Or we're just gonna step away. So he asked him the first question. Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah's thing is, Okay, I've done everything. And all your people took off, and they've, they've gone against your covenant. But I've, I've stood for you. In fact, I'm the only one left that's for you. And all of a sudden, God, what? He splits the mountains with a wind. He shakes the earth, which is pretty impressive to do. And he sends fire, and God's not in any of them. And then there's a low whisper. See, this is the part where I wonder if Elijah would be more jealous of us than us of him. It's like, well, if I just saw the things Elijah did, then I would be fine. And yet he saw all these things and he's still at this point, but he hears this low whisper. And followers of Christ, I'm speaking to you now, we have that relationship with God where the Holy Spirit is speaking to us in this low whisper. And so after this huge show and the low whisper, and that's where God is, it says that Elijah covered his face and he stepped out and God asked him, what are you doing here? Like, okay, you saw this, this, this. Look what I just did. Now I'm speaking to you again. So what are you doing here? And you would think that Elijah would all of a sudden go, okay, I get it. But what is Elijah's response? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And here's the thing. How is it that Elijah became so self-focused? No matter what it is that God showed him in his power and his ability, Elijah still couldn't see it. What is it with us? That God over and over shows his ability, and all of a sudden we just keep focusing on us. 
I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. And do you notice it's the people of Israel that fell away and they ran away? And yet who is it that just ran away? Who is it that took off for his life? But he's pointing the finger at everyone else and he's not noticing what? He himself ran away from God. In the most literal sense, he runs away. Followers of Christ, as long as we keep looking at a world that doesn't know Jesus, expecting that they should act like Christians when they're not Christians, and as long as we keep pointing God to our resume about how incredible we've been and what we've accomplished, but all these losers or all these people, all these broken people are just messing everything up, forgetting from where we came. We will never have the heart of Jesus. We will never go for the broken. We will never go for the lost. Why? Because it's them against us. And yet God so loved the world that he gave. That God so loved the world that he came for us. And so God is not against them. But Elijah, it's like he puts himself outside of this. He sees himself as being alone. And isn't that the hardest place to be? In verse 15, and the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And this is the part that stood out to me a long time ago. It just hit me. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of that guy's name, you shall anoint to be prophet, here it is, in your place. Guys, guys, he just got replaced. Why? Because here's God showing who he is and and God's like, okay, I'm going to show you. Look, look what I did. Look what I did just to get your focus back on me. Look, look who I am. Be blown away. Get the boldness. Get the courage. Because here it comes. And then he speaks to him in a whisper. And Elijah misses it for some reason. And God responds. Okay, go back. Which I love that part. It's not like in that moment God goes, you're done. You're done. And I'm got, you got five seconds. I'm going to just take you home. You're going to die right here. Boom, you're out. That'd be like a really dumb way to end the story, wouldn't it? But all of a sudden, it's like, okay, I get it. Okay, I see it. I see it. I see it. You need to go back. I've got some things for you to do, but here's what you're going to do. You're going to invest in the person to replace you. It's not like it just happened in weeks. This is a long time. But he says, you got to find Elisha, and you're going to anoint him prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Friends, followers of Jesus, do you ever feel like you're the only one? I mean, isn't it easier just to fit in with everyone else? No matter what, I mean, just look at culture and just sitting there going, okay, they all look like they're having a blast, but here's the thing. I'm standing on the side watching you all have a flipping blast because you're here worshiping Jesus. And so here's what happens. We go back home thinking, no, we can't do this. Friends, we should be the one that teaches the world how to celebrate because we actually have something and someone to celebrate in. So what, but what do you do? What do we do? We conform. We look like everything and everyone else around us. If you find yourself doing this, I'm just tired of it. It doesn't work. 
Friends, Christianity is not something that works for you. Christianity is the story of Christ who did something for you. That we might know him. It's not something we try out. It's not a test drive of a car. Jesus is the person. Jesus is the God that we surrender to. There's no test drive with this. It's not working for me. Maybe this is the problem. We're always looking for what else God is going to do for us. Forgetting about the fact that God has actually called us to engage the mission. So can I just be straight up honest again? If you're bored as a Christian, you're boring. Stop blaming God for your boredom. Seriously, if you are bored as a Christian, you're boring. Do you realize there's always one more person to meet, one more person to introduce to Christ, one more person to serve, one more person to feed, one more person to clothe, one more area to go and to impact for Jesus. There's always one more time to come together in his word and to spend time with him. There's always one more time to just sit and to reflect and to speak to the God of the universe. There's always one more thing we can do and some of you hear that and go, that's exhausting, Brian. I know. But you're not bored. And yet some of you, this is what you do. I'm bored. And I see all my friends having so much fun. But what have they done? They've settled for a can of soup. And God's got a $1,000 bill waiting for you. But Brian, it's easier. I know. But you ever notice the things that are worth having and the things that are worth remembering are not the easy things, but the things that you had to actually work for? Some of you guys are conforming. My friends do this, so therefore I do this. And if, my, if I do this, my friends won't, if I don't do what they're doing, my friends won't accept me. Can I just, again, we're going to get straight up on this. If you've got quote unquote friends that won't accept you because you might not do those things that they're doing, you don't have friends. Kick those fake friends to the curb. Find some friends that actually love and care about you and serve Jesus. Are you saying I don't love them? Absolutely not. I'm not saying I don't love them. I'm just saying welcome to your mission field. Instead of, that, instead of allowing them to change who you are, allow Jesus to change who they are through you. When you start grabbing onto the mission, oh, it changes everything. But here's the thing. How many of you still feel a little bit ashamed? Because you've been overtaken and overrun by your fears or by your regrets. So if I use this word, if I just say the word regret, and by a show of hands, you don't have to say what it is. But by a show of hands, when I say that word regret, how many of you think of that one thing, that main thing that comes to your mind you wish you never did? Do me a favor. I mean, everybody in the room. Now, do me a favor. Look around the room. Two words. What is it? To encourage you? You suck. Right? It's okay. We're okay. We all have the regret. But I, either we listen, on oh, winter camp's theme just blew my mind because I just love Isaiah. When that, when that fiery angel comes flying up to Isaiah 
And Isaiah had just got done saying, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Notice the difference in the prophets. Elijah's pointing pointing God to the fact that they've all messed up. And Isaiah comes out and says, I'm just as screwed up as the rest of them. I'm a man of unclean lips. They're people of unclean lips. And the seraphim comes flying toward Isaiah with a burning coal and touches his lips. You ever wonder why he touches his lips? Because wasn't it what, isn't this what Isaiah said? I'm a man of unclean lips. And so you take something that's hot, representing purification. He purifies that which Isaiah says is unclean. And what's he say? Your sin's been atoned for. Your guilt has been taken away. Your guilt has been taken away. So can I ask you a question? Why are still some of you holding on to it? And if God's taken it away, you find the other part, the other guilt. And God's like, I took that away. All of the guilt is taken away. And so instead of engaging in the the mission, instead of running back to Jesus, you've run away. But what if it could be this easy? Now remember, it cost Jesus everything. But maybe it's for a specific purpose. We're going to finish the evening in John chapter 21. You can turn there if you want. If you don't, it's totally fine. But you remember when Peter, when Jesus is about ready to go to the cross and Jesus looks at all of his disciples and says, hey, all of you are gonna run from me. You're all gonna desert me tonight. And what's Peter say? No, 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 not me. Even if all the slackers do, I never will. And Jesus says, Peter, you're gonna be the worst one. I mean, at least they'll just run away. They're not gonna say a word. They're gonna take off. But you are going to speak. You're gonna verbalize the fact that you don't know who I am three times before morning. And did it come true? Absolutely. And when it came true, the rooster crowed. Jesus looked straight into the eyes of Peter. And Peter says that Peter ran away and wept bitterly. Can you imagine those three days? That Peter is just in torment. The disciples are terrified. And here's the truth. No one, no one believed that Jesus would come back from the dead. None of the disciples believed it. None of the, no one. I mean, no one. Not, not the 12. Judas isn't part. So none of the 11. All the other ones. All the ones who were found. None of them believed he, came, he would come back from the dead. How I know? How do I know? Here's how I know. Because when it was time for the third day to start, no one was standing at the tomb going, 10, 9, 8, 7, with this anticipation that the rock was going to move. And Jesus was going to come out. They all hid. Now, there were some women that wanted to go anoint his body, but they weren't anointing his body because he was alive. They were going to anoint his body because he was dead. So can you imagine? When those women came running back to the disciples and said, okay, he's alive. He's alive. And then John records that Peter took off running toward the tomb. And then... I love John. You can tell he's a little bit competitive because he says this. He goes, and the beloved disciple took off also after Peter, the beloved disciple, the favorite. (laughs) Isn't that great? I used to think, John, you're such a punk. I mean, you're just such an arrogant little jerk. I'm the beloved disciple. (laughs) On the scale of one to 10, I am the 11. It's awesome. (laughs) Until God hit me. What would it be like if you could believe that you were the beloved of God? 
not based on your performance, but based upon God's view of you, how would it change your life? Instead of trying to appease him every day, you just walked with him. You just knew that you were the beloved of God. And I thought, John, you are on to something. But then he goes like this. Peter takes off running. The beloved disciple takes on after him and then passes him along the way. <laughs> John's like, boom, I mean, that's how it works. He says he shows up to the tomb first, and he's, but here's the thing, he shows up and he peers inside from the outside. And Peter just goes running in. Okay, that's terrifying. Don't sit there and go, I would too. No, you wouldn't, because it's a tomb. And what could be in there? But the zombie. The zombie apocalypse is coming. But Peter just goes running right in. There's Jesus's, the, the, the strips of linen that were around Jesus, they've kind of, they're just kind of sitting there like Jesus came out of them and, and left them there. And then the, the face covering, he actually folded it. I mean, he thought, like, oh, this is too messy. Oh, there it is. <laughs> and here's the part that blows my mind. Do you realize how, to what extreme people will go to to make sure that Jesus didn't come back from the dead? They come up with these weird theories. I always bring this one up because I'm thinking, this is the best you have to offer to try to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. It's called the swoon theory. Here's what it is, the swoon theory. Jesus didn't really die. He just, he just passed out on the cross. So here's how it works. So Jesus, after being brutally tortured, hanging on a cross for six, six hours, all the blood rushing from his body, and then to make sure that he was dead, the Roman guard sticks a spear up through his side, through his chest cavity, through a lung, puncturing the lung into his heart, pulls it out, blood and water come flowing out. So it looks like he's dead, but probably not. He just passed out. Okay, and the Roman guard's sitting there going, I think he's dead. Okay, so they bring him down. Then they put him in the tomb. They wrap him up like a mummy. mummy. Then they cover his face. They roll the stone in the way. And they walk away. And then at some point, Jesus wakes up. <laughs> All of a sudden, he's like, mm, what the? <laughs> he's like, well, this is going to be tough, but I got three days to get out of this. <laughs> he's like Houdini, getting out of this stuff. But he's got three days to wait, so he finally gets out of it. And so to make sure that it looks like he actually just came out of the linens, not unraveled them, but he just kind of elevated out of them. He's sitting there like craft time, and he's putting the, he's putting the linens back. Oh, that looks good. That looks good. That looks good. Yeah. Fold this. Move the rock by myself. Jack up some guards. Go take a shower and live your life. So you got Jesus and Elvis and Tupac all living together because <laughs> nobody knows what happened to them. <laughs> I said, they're going, are you serious? Like you actually have people that go, sounds right. <laughs> Brian, what's some proof that it happened? Just explain this. How is it that the cowardly disciples who wouldn't leave the room, almost all of them die a martyr's death because they would not deny the resurrection of Christ? If they knew it to be a lie or supposedly stole the body, why all of a sudden are they so bold? 
So the third day happens. Peter goes and says, oh my gosh, this, this, is, oh, this is amazing. But Jesus isn't around. And then Jesus shows himself to the 11 or the 10. Remember Thomas isn't there, poor guy. He's missing out. He's getting groceries and comes back. Hey, we saw him. He's alive. And what's he say? I'm not going to believe that. And we give him this really bad rap. Doubting Thomas. Doubting. He's such a doubter. And so I, I remember back when I had Bibles that were older, the publisher put in there, Doubting Thomas. And I thought, well, it's easy to say that from your chair, <laughs> doubting Thomas. You know, I give props to Thomas. Why? Because he said this, unless I see him for myself, I'm not going to believe just because you said it. I want to experience him just like you did. So unless I see the nail marks in his hands and see the spear mark up into his side, I'm not going to believe. What about a week later he shows up? Jesus just shows up. Doors are locked. Windows are locked. And Jesus is just like, boo. Doesn't knock, just kind of goes in. Boom. And the first thing he says is, Thomas, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> That's why you need to read your Bibles. <laughs> okay. No, he doesn't, he doesn't even get mad. He doesn't bring anything up. He goes, look, Thomas, look. Touch the nail marks in my hands. And then he moves the robe. Touch the, touch the spear mark in my side. Now stop doubting and believe. And what's Thomas's response? My Lord and my God. And he worshiped him. Not too long after that, Jesus isn't around. The disciples are like, what do we do? And Peter's like, let's go fishing. I know, I know what to do. Go back to what I used to do. So he and like seven others go fishing. So they go in the middle of the night. They've taken out their, off their outer garments, which just sounds like a very awkward fishing trip. <laughs> it's, it's just weird. It sounds like some college prank, but that's what they did. They're working all night. They're not finding any fish. And all of a sudden, they don't recognize Jesus from the shore. And Jesus comes walking. They don't know it's him. He's like, hey, hey, little boys, did you catch anything? <laughs> now, if you've been up all night and you didn't catch a thing and you haven't eaten, you know what you are? You're hangry. Who knows what hangry is? Do me a favor, friends. If you don't understand what that is, you see the people with their hands up. When they are hungry, they get angry. Right? When I'm tired, I get angry. I don't care who you are. When I'm tired, just leave me alone. Do you imagine being up all night and the guy from the shore is like, hey, did you catch anything? Did he just say it? Did he just say that? They don't know it's Jesus. Can you imagine Peter going, you want some of this? Take the boat. Let's do it. There's seven of us. We jack them up. <laughs> they go, no, we haven't caught anything. <laughs> this is all he says. Throw the net on the other side. There you go. That'll fix it. <laughs> There's this big sea, and they've been throwing it on the wrong side the whole time. <laughs> think, think about it. Think, that's why I love Jesus. He's so flipping funny. He's <laughs> like, just, just, okay, you've been, you've been throwing the net on the wrong side. Like all the fish are like, come on, they always throw it over there. <laughs> get, get grandpa, grandpa, come here. Hey, thanks, appreciate it. <laughs> and so then here goes Jesus. Hey, just throw it on the other side. And so they do. Can you imagine? It's like the fish just jump in. They're like, that's what we've been waiting for. We like the net. Can you imagine the boat going, wham? And they're like, oh. 
And they're trying to bring the fish up. And all of a sudden, Peter looks. And John looks, and John goes, it's the Lord. <laughs> okay, here's Peter. I love him. Because he, he doesn't think about stuff. <laughs> okay, serious, seriously. He's like, it's Jesus. They're all in a boat. The boat works. He's, he picks up his outer garment, puts it on, and just jumps in and starts to swim. I've never seen an Olympic swimmer do that. They come with those big jackets, and all of a sudden they get half naked, and they're getting ready to go, and they're, I don't know, if you're a swimmer, I don't understand how your arms clap behind your back. So bam, I just did it, okay, bam. Okay, so you're all ready to go. I've never seen someone go, okay, get ready. You're like, wait, I need my jacket. I just want to give you all a chance. <laughs> and then you step up. So Peter puts it on, and he's swimming. Can you imagine the other disciples going, hey, we'll see you in there. Okay. <laughs> just rowing past. You're doing, wow, look at that. You've really been working on cardio. And then they just keep going. <laughs> they meet Jesus on shore. He's made him breakfast. Then you get to verse 15 of John 21. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you know why that would have stung? Because remember when Peter said, even if all of these run away, I never will. And Jesus, first thing he says, do you really love me more than these? And do you notice what he calls him? He calls him Simon. Guys, that was his name before Jesus met him. When he met, Jesus goes, your name is Simon, but you will be Peter. And the word Peter, his name means rock. And he says, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot withstand. I mean, this is, this is a big time here, Peter. But here he doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon. It's like he does this. I'm taking you back to the beginning. I'm just gonna simply ask you, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, well, then tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Guys, the first two love, so I'm gonna make sure I get this right. The first two times he says, do you love me? He uses the word agape. Guys, that's the love that we're called to. And it has really nothing to do with an emotion. It has everything to do with a choice, a, a commitment, a covenant. But the third time he says, do you phileo me? Which, hey, are we brothers? Is there this kinship between us? Now watch Simon's response. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, and feed my sheep. Now here's the part that gets me. He just asks him the question, do you love me? Yeah. He doesn't say, tell me what you did. Tell me what you did. What did you learn from it? You failed, Peter. You failed. You said you wouldn't, but you failed. And for some of you, that's the idea of God that you have. He's just going to point out all the failures that you have. That is not God. He paid way too high a price for you to keep sitting in this guilt. That's either you or the enemy, but God, your sin has been atoned for and your guilt has 
taken away. I love the fact he just says, hey, do you love me? Because that's the greatest commandment. Love God with everything you got. Then love your neighbor as yourself. So let's just get back to the first commandment. Let's get back to the most important one. Do you love me? It's like with Elijah. What are you doing here? Let's get back to where we go. Let's just get back to the beginning. Do you love me? I do. Oh, good. Feed my sheep. That was it. Let's get back to work. He doesn't make him pay a price. He doesn't make him jump through hoops to prove it. He's like, let's get back to work. Let's get back to work. And then he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, and whenever Jesus says that, pay attention. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Here's John's interpretation of that statement. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. He gives them the story in the beginning. It's going to get hard, Peter. In fact, at the end, you're going to die. You're going to be crucified. Now, he's using the word, but when you look at Peter's life, if tradition's true, this is church tradition, this is what they're saying, that Peter was crucified, but because he did not feel worthy to die the same way Jesus did, he requested that he be hung upside down. So when Jesus looks at him in the beginning and says, Simon, You're Simon, but you will be Peter. By the time you are done walking with me, you will be rock. Was Jesus right? Absolutely. Do you ever wonder what his name is for you? Like for me, it's like, you are Brian. You will be whatever. Hopefully something sweet. Your name is Brian. You will be full head of hair warrior. I mean, something like that. (laughs) Something strong, like, like a mane, like Aslan. Wouldn't that be great? Maybe not. Maybe not that much. Okay, but not that much. But then he just gives this, and this is what's going to happen. This is the bad stuff. I'm going to tell you the whole thing in the beginning. And then he says, follow me. The invitation is still the same. I asked you in the beginning, follow me. You dropped everything and ran after me. I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen if you do. Follow me. Same invitation. Watch Peter's response. Peter turned. And saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. There he goes again. Flipping John. Just in his favorite. The the disciple Jesus loved. Following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper. And he said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Okay, you're telling me this has happened to me, but what what about him? I would never do that, Brian. Yes, you would. Just like I do. God, why am I facing this trial? They aren't. I'm following you. They're not. Or, God, we both are your kids, and I'm going through this horrific thing, and their life is perfect. What about them? Now watch Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to do? What, I'm sorry, let me make sure you get that right. What is that to you? You know, what the, you know what Jesus is saying in the most polite way? It's none of your business. And that's where you're like, uh-uh, no, that's not right. That's not fair. I'm not supposed to say that anymore. We actually think that God has to tell us Everything. He doesn't have to tell us a thing. 
The fact that he actually speaks to us, the fact that he wrote his word, guys, that's a gift. And then what's he say? You follow me. We look back at Elijah. God says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? He answers the same way each time. Maybe God's question to you, right now, where you're at, I'm not saying up here to you, I'm not saying that. I'm saying where you are in life, that if you've kind of wandered or you've run because you're afraid, because you're ticked off, or you just want to conform like everyone else and you actually think that that's rebellious, when you're doing what everyone else is doing, it just kind of seems like you're just doing what everyone else is doing. And so you just bolt. And maybe right now tonight, God is saying, why are you here? Why are you here? And now you have to answer. Now, this is not one of those things where you better fake something, make it happen, and you feel better. If you're not, I mean, if you're sitting there right next to, the, right next to Jesus, like you are so tight, awesome. But for some of you, Jesus is saying, hey, you got to stop looking around at everybody else's life and start realizing that I'm the one who actually provides the life that you have. Why is it so hard? Isn't it weird? We ask God why it's so hard, but we never thank him for the fact that he went through something so much more horrific than we will ever face. Jesus didn't come and give himself the cush life. Jesus came and gave himself the hardest life. And he endured it, and he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. But he wants you to be what? Back. It's fine. It's not my battery pack, so it's fine. <laughs> he wants you to be back. Can I get straight up? For those of you that keep saying, I just want to be like everyone else, I say this as lovingly as I can. And I get the temptation that's there, and I get the, the draw to conform. I get that. I understand that. But as long as you keep saying that, I just want to be like everyone else. You got to find a way to grow a spine. You got to find a way to be a person, a whole person who doesn't need the applause and the accolades of another human creation. You got to find a way to submit to, totally to Jesus and allow him to make you whole. And some of you have settled. But what's God doing? Up in heaven going, ha, 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 get him. Nope. No, no. He's drawing you back. He's drawing you back. Maybe as a cabin at some point tonight or tomorrow, read Luke 15, the last half, the prodigal son story. I love that passage, and it's a story that Jesus tells. Why is it so powerful? My favorite part is when the younger son comes to his senses and he brings up this idea. If you've never read it, read it as a group or just read it individually and you have questions. If you find me around, just chat or talk to your youth pastor, counselor, whoever. It says he's, he's living this wild living. He takes his inheritance he's supposed to get when, he, when his dad dies, but his dad's not even dead yet. He says, can you just give me my money like you'd give me if, I, if you were dead? And he goes and just squanders it, just wastes it all. Then he's, there's, this, he's, there's this famine. He's in poverty. He comes to his sense, he goes, if I could just go home, I could become a servant. I don't have to be a son, I could be a servant. 
And he has this whole speech ready and says that he walks back. And here's the, the picture shifts. It says, when his father saw him from a distance. You know what that means? That dad was looking for his return. When he saw him from a distance, he ran toward him. What's so big about that? Because in that culture, no pious Jewish man would run. And so when Jesus says he ran, every person listening to the story thinks, oh, dad's going to jack him up. But all of a sudden when it says the father just grabbed onto him, the the son is trying to go through his whole little speech. The, The dad just grabs him. And hugs him, kisses him, and he looks back and goes, guys, get the best robe which belongs to the father. Get the ring, put it on his hand. Kill Bubba the fattened calf, because tonight, yeah, this is the time to celebrate, because my son who was dead is now alive. The one who was lost is found. And that's Jesus' story that he tries to get us to understand. You want to know what God's like when we come back? He throws a flippin' party. And all of heaven celebrates. So here's what we're going to do. Worship team is going to come back out. We got to close with worship, right? We got to sing. But here's the other part of it. Some of you guys got to answer the question, what are you doing here? In the place that you are, how you've kind of run from God, whether it's fear or you just want to sin or you want to be like everyone else. Some of you are trying to find loopholes in Scripture. Well, the, del- the Bible never says anything about, oh, please, find the principle in Scripture. So you keep using the excuses so you can live however you want. And all the while, God is saying, I set up the commandments for your joy. Trust the heart of the Father so that you can trust the will of the Father. And maybe he's just saying, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? It's time to come back. And for those of you, you have, but you're like, Brian, but ah, nothing has changed. There's only so much Bible I can read. I get that. So now go do it. Like, if you're just going to have a Bible study constantly, Jesus did not come, die on a cross, be tortured like crazy, take the wrath of God, come back from the dead so you can read a fat book. (laughs) He did all those things that we might have relationship with him, that the Holy Spirit may indwell us, live inside of us, lead, guide, convict, encourage, comfort, lead us in mission, empower us to do the work of God. But for some of you, you've been in Bible study for way too long. And it is time to start doing something with it. And as you do that, we always get back in the word to be filled up to go empty ourselves again. Constant relationship back and forth and go with God in it. So for tonight, I'm just asking, if you kind of feel like Elijah or like Peter, you've just kind of run off and here comes God confronting you. Do you love me? Do you love me? He's not asking for an explanation. He's just saying, do you love me? And if your answer is yes, I'm ashamed of this, but I do love you. Just listen to what he says and feed my sheep. Let's get back to this. Let's get back to where we were. So here's what I'm gonna ask before we pray. If you're just saying, yeah, okay, I get it. Just stand up. You wanna answer the question? I love you. 
I don't want to be away anymore. I need to be right where you are. And whatever that means for you, but if you just strayed and you got to come back, say, God, I want to be used by you and I do love you. And you want to you take that regret and that guilt and move it out because God has erased it. If that's you, just stand up. It's not a first-time commitment. It's just, I want, yeah, Jesus, I love you, and I'm back. I'm back. Anybody? Just stand up. Just stand up. All around the room. Yeah, I'm answering the question, Jesus. I love you. I love you. And I just got to be where you are. No more excuses. No more reasons that you can think you can come up with. Stop trying to be like everyone else and be the one that God says, I've, I've developed you, I've designed you for a specific purpose. Stop conforming. No guilt. No guilt. It's called the process. As I pray, if there's anybody else who wants to stand up, just as an offering to God, and then they'll take you back into worship. Worship singing, I should say. Okay, can I pray for you? Jesus, I pray that you would put in us a, the boldness that you have, a bo- the boldness of a lion, that we would stand for you as we stand with you. God, I pray that those who are standing, that they would, they would hear applause, they would sense celebration, that they would see the picture in Luke 15 of a father running toward them and grabbing onto them and saying, welcome home. God, I pray that those who are standing, this is not a mountaintop experience. I think that at this moment, I thank you that they're saying, God, I am all in. I don't want to conform anymore. And I don't want to use excuses of why I, I, I want to run or do my own thing. Jesus, I thank you for this group of students, and counselors and youth pastors and Hume staff members, for all of us that say, we will stand for you. But I thank you that you are so gracious when we get a little bit where we're not supposed to be. You just welcome us back and you put us right back into where we need to be. God, as we give you praise, as we sing to you, God, I thank you that you hush heaven to hear your kids sing as we tell you how much we love you. So God, in this time and in all that you've done and in all that you'll continue to do, to you be all the praise, all the glory and all the honor for you alone are worthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name and everyone who agrees says, amen. Love you all more than you know.